Hello, and thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. My name is Jason in Brooklyn, often known as U.S. Jason. I have been a regular contributor to the Trap One podcast for six years now. Many thanks to Mark for discovering me and having me on the show for the first time to discuss the new series adventure Diamond Dogs by Mike Tucker later on during the pandemic, allowing me to guest host a few episodes, and now I have been a permanent co-host for the last couple of years. I also have a side project you might be interested in, the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. For the last 18 months, I have been going through the Target novelizations from 1973 onward in publication order, beginning with the very first three Frederick Muller books, Doctor Who in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks, Doctor Who and the Zarbi, and Doctor Who and the Crusaders, which were reprinted by Target Books in May 1973, and then following on with the original Target Books, beginning in January 1974, Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion by the great Terrence Dix, and Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters by Malcolm Hulk. Currently on the podcast, I am towards the end of the 1983 calendar, and I am about 80 books in to the target line, which wrapped up at about book 156, although there were several non-numbered books in the middle, so my podcast will extend for far more than just 156 episodes. Every week on my show, I do a breakdown of the text of the novelization, and every week I have a different guest. Many of the Trap One regulars have been on Doctor Who Literature, And I am privileged from time to time to have a professional from the world of Doctor Who join my show and discuss their works. I have had several authors from the Black Archive series from Obverse Books. I am working on a separate Trap One episode that is a compilation of my Black Archives interviews. I have occasionally had actors associated with the show. And I was very fortunate about a year ago to be connected with Philip Hinchcliffe, who was Doctor Who's showrunner i.e. producer, for TV seasons 12, 13, and 14. Philip has been a steady contributor to all sorts of Doctor Who product over the years, including the DVDs, the Blu-rays, Big Finish audios, and Target novelizations. Philip authored three Target books between 1977 and 1980, I was very privileged to have Philip join me as a guest to discuss each of those three books, Doctor Who and the Seeds of Doom, February 1977, Doctor Who and the Mask of Mandragora, December 1977, and Doctor Who and the Keys of Marinus, August 1980. I will now be presenting to you a supercut of those three interviews with the books going in publication order, Seeds of Doom, Mask of Mandragora, and Keys of Marinus. Of course, that is not story order, but Doctor Who literature has made the editorial choice to discuss the books in publication order rather than story order, so we can look at the evolution of the line and how it changed over the years. You can also see Philip evolving as an author as his three books come out. Each book is progressively longer and a little more complex than the previous one, and I will discuss with Philip many details from his biography and, of course, the authoring of these three books. So, give it up for the great Philip Hinchcliffe, and let's listen to his conversations with Doctor Who literature about Doctor Who and the Seeds of Doom, 
Doctor Who and the Mask of Mandragora, and Doctor Who and the Keys of Marinus. We Shut up! Something? Okay, stop talking. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had perfect pitch. What happened I, to him? Who, Wolfgang Amadeus? Oh, him. Oh, he died. How did we that happen? Out. It happened because of a pod. The pod? Look, Doctor, there's already one corpse in here. I could easily double that number. Look, he's telling you what. There's been an accident. One of the men was infected. By the pod? He went mad. Yes. You could say he's not quite himself. Where is he now? We don't know. Somewhere out there. Oh, you mean you have a homicidal maniac on the loose? Oh, much more dangerous than that. And he's desperate for food and warmth. But there's only one place he can find food and warmth. You mean this camp? It's a comforting thought, isn't it? Between 1974 and 1977, there were 16 complete Doctor Who serials released between the Ark in Space and the Talons of Wang Chiang. Of those 16 stories, eight of them were ranked in the top 22 all-time by Doctor Who magazine in a poll that ran in the year 2014. That is a remarkable run of success, and it is down very largely to the show's producer during those three years, Philip Hinchcliffe. I am very thrilled and delighted today to be joined by Mr. Philip Hinchcliffe. Philip, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to me. Philip, you have talked quite a bit on the DVD range, the original DVDs and now the Blu-rays about your time on the show and about your TV episodes. So that's very, very good material, and I am sure that all of my listeners have all those box sets or are in the process of getting them. What I want to talk to you about today uh, primarily are the novelizations. You did three different novelizations. You did The Keys of Marinus, you wrote The Mask of Mandragora, and the very first one that you wrote came out in February 1977, and it is the subject of our episode of Doctor Who Literature Today, The Seeds of Doom. That's right. I remember it well. (laughs) So I wanted to talk generally, when you first started as producer that would have been, I assume, mid to late 1974. The novelizations had just started earlier that year. The first original Target books came out in January 74. All right, I didn't know that. they, they, They started up in 73 by reprinting some old books, and then the original books for Target came out in January 74. Terrence Dix did one, and Malcolm Hulk did the other. Oh, yes, I remember now, Malcolm Hulk. Yeah, that's right. Um... Yeah, well, I had joined the BBC about then, uh, but and I was trailing, beginning to trail the program. So I met Terence, and uh, yeah, I now remember. Uh, I, I thought it, he'd been writing them for longer than that. I didn't realise that that he started then, uh, but yeah, I do remember that he and Malcolm Hulk, yeah, they did talk to me about uh, about starting the stories. Yeah. Terence was very prolific. So by 1977, in those in the first three years, he had probably written more than half the books by that point. So once he left the script editor position, he was very very busy writing up to eight or nine books a year, which is a yes, incredible yes, pace. Yes, he was. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you you just turned around and he'd written another one, <laughs> and then started. I, I think he probably started on his own stories. You know that he. 
worked on with Barry, <clears throat> but I think he then sort of they seem to be popular. So I guess he he then started doing the the back catalog as well. Yes, I think in the final analysis, he ended up doing novelizations for each of the first six doctors, even though he only worked directly on the show for about three or four of them. So a very impressive run. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> You've got to live, love the program to do that. <laughs> Eight books a year is, is a lot. <laughs> Certainly. You're either working on Doctor Who or watching Doctor Who or reading about Doctor Who, which even for someone like me, can be a bit much. <laughs> they're not too bad. I think they're about 50,000 words, which is is manageable. When you were the producer of the show, did you have any editorial input into the novelizations? So, for example, did you say, I would like you to novelize this story next, or did you have any input into the text? No, not at all. Uh, I, I, I don't know the company. They were called Target, I think. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, the publishers made all those decisions. What I had always thought in my head is that you began writing your novelizations after your time in the Doctor Who production office came to a close. What came as a surprise to me is that Seeds of Doom was actually released in February 1977. So you would watch Robots of Death Part 3, go to the store and buy the book, and then the following Saturday you'd watch Robots of Death Part 4. That means you were writing the book almost certainly while you were producing the show, which is also an incredible pace. Do you recall how you first got approached to write Seeds of Doom and where you were in terms of making the show when you wrote it? Yeah, you, you surprised me with those dates, but I don't doubt you at all. Um, basically, um, I was too busy to write scripts and be producer. And also, it, was, uh, it went against the grain at the time at the BBC that you couldn't be seen to be self-commissioning because you were taking right work from writers who were members of the Writers Guild. Um, so, um, you know, we didn't have animals like the showrunners that you have today, like Russell T. Davis, um, uh, which was very much uh, the American model at the time. So I, I knew that I, I couldn't write any of the scripts, uh, even if I'd had the time and energy. It was a big enough job just being the producer because it was such a difficult show to do. So I thought, oh, it'd be quite nice to sort of maybe have a go at one of the novelizations. So I don't know who I spoke to, but probably the publisher and said, look, I, you know, I don't mind doing one of these. Um, and they said, oh, yeah, uh, what would you like to do? I thought, well, I'd like to do one that I'd produce because I knew the story, I knew the actors, I knew everything about it. It would be easy. So, um, and uh, the writer of that, Bob Baxter, you know, became a sort of good friend. And um, I don't know whether I chose that or whether the publishers suggested it as the first one they wanted. So anyway, I, I did it. My memory is that I wrote it, half, half of it was written in Slough Library um, because I left, I had two, I had a, you know, I thought I couldn't do it at home because um, too much distraction. So I just took my, myself off to the library and uh, there I was amongst a load of bunch of students who, you know, 10 years before I was there, mugging up for my uh, school leaving exams and then 10, 
10 years later, I'm in there writing a book about this series that I'd produced. So I wrote half of it there. And then I remember, unless I'm getting confused here, I remember that I, I went for a week's holiday by myself, actually, uh, in Madeira uh, with a family member. And, um, and I think I finished it off there. I sort of worked in the morning and then Sundays in the afternoon. Um, and that would have been... Yes, probably at some point early on in the spring. But, you know, it's such a long time ago. I get I get these things um, confused. And maybe I'm getting confused with the writing time I took out for Mask of Mandragora. But um, it didn't take very long, actually, to write these. Um, A, because, it, you know, the program was in my head. I could, you know, see it. Um, so, it, you know, it was only a matter of a few weeks, you know, to, to get one written writing these at night so in other words producing the show during the day and then going to the library after work or were these written on weekends or well no because we only my my producing uh finished uh it it just crossed over into 77 didn't it and what i was doing then was uh yeah there was the last post-production sort of bits and bobs of talons of Wing Chiang. But I, my, so I was wrapping that up, but I was really busy because I was preparing a new cop show series from scratch, um, which wasn't in good shape. And uh, uh, I had to re, had to write a new pilot with, with the director. Uh, so um, that's what I was busy doing then. Um, I don't remember how I, fitted this in altogether. I, I don't know when I wrote it. You tell me when I wrote it. <laughs> and but so it wasn't that I was working on Who. I was coming, it was all winding down on Doctor Who, but this huge uh, sort of challenge was on my plate to get this new series up and running and get scripts in for that. Uh, that, that. That was the big problem. I don't know how I fitted. This must have been sort of, downtime relaxation writing this book <laughs> i'm feeling tired just hearing this and the show the cop show was called target and at the same That's time right. you're writing a novelization for target books yeah i don't think they were the same yeah it was just one of those funny uh, popular name at the time <laughs> so were you writing on a on a word processor or a typewriter or in longhand perhaps uh longhand oh, yeah wow. we, i don't think we had word processors then so uh, I would write in longhand, uh, illegible longhand, uh, and then I would um, type it up, you know, making changes when I typed it up on a, on a typewriter, an old Smith Corona, and um, given to me by one of my best friends, Robert Lacey. You may well know in a different guise. He's a, a royal commentator uh who works uh for british television uh well he's a historian actually he's written a lot of queen uh, books about the royal family but he, he works for one of the major um american networks and comments on royal matters you know and uh he gave me his uh, smith corona portable which was great and i had it for years and years and wrote everything on it scripts uh books everything so um yeah that's what i did yeah <laughs> I will thank my. I will thank the typewriter if I ever see it for all the hours of pleasure that typewriter has given me as a Doctor Who reader and viewer for sure. <laughs>
yeah, it's gone gone to this typewriters in the sky. <laughs> Was there uh, a lot of editorial work done on Seeds of Doom? Did you have somebody looking at the pages and giving you notes, or was it accepted uh, pretty much yeah. as is? Didn't no changes at all. You just put you handed in it, handed it in. That was it. Yeah. So what I have in front of me today is the U.S. reprint of the book with a different logo, put up by a New York-based oh, right. company yeah. called Pinnacle Books. Yeah, it's, yeah. This, this is mine, which is the original. Oh yes, yeah. so that's, that's, that's the that's the the publisher's you know freebie that he gave me. And, that's in terrific shape. That was the Mask of Mandragora with. Oh, um, sorry. Hang on. Here we are. Tom is. Baker. There's, yeah, there's a Susan Dunn. Yeah. Oh, that is a gorgeous cover with the crinoid and the explosions. It's very similar to the American cover too, actually. Although the Amer the American cover is at night with the moon, so it's a little darker. Yeah, I think I like that one. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed reading the book is that you don't include all of the scenes that were shot for television. So a lot of the Tom Baker jokey lines that sound as if they may have been ad libs were not in the book. And the character of Amelia Ducat, the flower artist, um, she's in a scene in the book, but there's a lot of material in the back half of the TV story where she kind of serves as a plot distraction and as an agent. All that is taken out of the book. When you were looking at the TV story, how did you decide which scenes you were going to adapt and which scenes you were, which scenes you were going to trim down? Uh, I can't really remember in detail. You're saying that the TV series had more scenes with that character, and I cut those scenes out in the novelization. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. The, it's a six-part story, so it's a very long yes. script, but yes. you have to fit into the target page count and word count, word count, I should say, so some yes. material yes. has to go. Yes, uh, I, I, I think I don't know what well the reason why it went. One of the reasons might have been that uh, at the scripting uh, stage of the TV series, um, it was clear that uh, nice as she was as a character, it was padding and a, a little bit too much. She had too much material, really. Uh, so we cut her down a lot, but obviously there was still a fair bit, you know, sort of, she added colour and, you know, whatever um, to the series. But um, I think in my mind, she was not essential to the plot. And I think that what you have to do with the sort of intelligent young reader is to use, is to keep the thing moving, um, keep it direct uh, and uh, use, you know, sort of imaginative vocabulary, but, you know, keep it relatively straightforward and, and, and also give it a pace. You know, they want, these kids want to read it, you know, almost like they're watching uh, an exciting, you know, adventure story. Um, and so, um, Probably I felt that to keep the streamlined sort of feel to the story, maybe those scenes were a bit too much of a diversion, perhaps. Um, that might be the reason. But if there was a, a word count, count problem, which I can't recall, uh, they would have been the scenes that would have gone as well. Yeah. Right. They don't directly 
impact the plot. There, there's a scene nice. towards the end of the story where she is talking to the civil servant character, uh, Sir Colin Thackeray, and she's insulting civil servants in general, and he gets defensive. And that can be wonderful material if you have the right actors, but it doesn't necessarily appeal to the nine-year-old reader who's trying to get to the end of the story. That's right. You you got it right. It's the nine-year-old reader who, you know, wants to consume you, you know. Uh, and um, I think that I, I, what I enjoyed about writing uh, the novels was uh, to find out, well, I, oh, actually, I can write an adventure story. <laughs> um, because there's a lot of hard, any novelist will tell you, there's a lot of hard graft in, um, in you may have written them yourselves, uh, yourself, but um, there's hard graft in setting the scene, introducing the characters with enough uh, detail, but not too much. And that's a real art uh, you have to learn. Um, I mean, all novelists are different and some give you a lot more information than others. But with an adventure story, you do have to set the scene and create the atmosphere and also um, give some hint of the inner life of the key characters. Um, obviously, you don't give really an insight into the doctor's inner life, which is a key thing about how the doctor is handled, you know, a, 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 as a mythic figure, really, in, in the story and, and in the whole, you know, sort of culture of Doctor Who stories. Um, but I found all that, you know, I was learning on the job how to do that. And it was great fun. Uh, and uh, I mean, I don't, I didn't look down or be patronizing about the young um, viewer because, or the reader, because I remember as a, as a kid, you know, consuming this sort of stuff, you know, the, the Knights of King Arthur. And, you know, I mean, I would read stuff that is really difficult now, you know, like the original Kidnapped and Coral Island. I mean, that's tough stuff, you know, for 10-year-olds today, let alone then. And uh, I've been quoted on this, but I remember reading Brave New World when I was about 10 or 11. I staggered through it, you know. But so um, I think today's readers, um, well, my readers uh, at that time, you know, uh, they, they can they can deal with a fair bit, but you have to... Um, you, you just have to sort of simplify a bit, but without being um, patronising or condescending. You, you really need to sort of, what you do is you discover the little boy, the, 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 the excited little boy in yourself, and you write for that. You know, that, that's, that's the, the trick, I think. And uh, I discovered I could do that. Um, and because I knew the stories so well, because I'd help, you know, create the stories and, and present them, you know, the way they looked and chose the actors. And you, you could use um, little details of, of the real actors, you know, feed that into the novelization, um, which is terrific, you know, so it's great help. Um, so I, I guess I've been thinking since, you know, you asked me to do this, you know, what, what was the experience of writing them like? And although I can't remember all these sort of factual details, that, that process was what I've described, it would be kind of the process, you know. And uh, so you have to really flesh out uh, what's not there, you know. There's no pictures, so you've got to create the pictures again in a different way. And this would not be a situation like today where you have the television or the laptop screen on and you're watching the story with one eye while typing it 
on the other screen, on the iPad, on the other eye. You were doing this from memory, essentially, without the flickering video in front of you. Yeah, yes. No, there was no, no, I didn't have the video. The only time I had video sort of in front of me, but it wasn't it. But I agreed to do another book, The Keys of Manorness, which was nothing, you know, and I, I wish I hadn't said yes because i don't know why i mean because they paid paid you peanuts but um anyway i i agreed and it was um you know one of the original stories i'd never seen it there were some episodes still extant in you know ropey black and white film and so i looked at those but i think i had to go somewhere to look at those and Certainly couldn't look at them at home or on a VHS or anything like that. I'm not sure they'd actually invented VHSs there when I was doing this. Uh, I think we still had those big Philips or Sony things. Uh, so you had to go somewhere with a big machine that could play them. Um, so that was the only one that I kind of did, you know, that I didn't have the pictures in my head, if you know what I mean. I had, and That's why I don't think it was a very good book, um, but uh, I tried anyway. <laughs> I, I will tell you that I got Keys of Marinus at my first Doctor Who convention when I was 11 going on 12 in the summer of 1985. And having bought five or six books, I immediately started reading them in story order, which is what an obsessive 11-year-old fan does. And I got about 80% of the way through Keys of Marinus just sitting in the hotel lobby between convention events. And that was when I discovered there's a big trial scene towards the end of Keys of Marinus, the book, and the way that you wrote it captivated me. I became the only 11-year-old in the city of New York who realized that he loved courtroom drama. And now, flash forward <laughs> almost 40 years, that is literally what I do for a living. So oh, that book okay. helped inspire me in large part, so I certainly thank you for that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. And you had, I, want to, I want to just come back to a couple of points you mentioned you mentioned bringing details about the actors to the book. Something that fascinated me when I was 11 or 12, the first time I would have read Seeds of Doom, at least in the American edition, it mentions that, that the fourth doctor weighs 217 pounds, which is a wonderfully specific detail. Do you know if that was the actual number or if you were just making that up for verisimilitude? I don't remember that. It wouldn't have been pounds anyway because we do um, stones. So uh, uh, I don't think I could remember that, no. I know the, the pinnacle books in the U.S. were lightly edited for the American reader, so they would change the punctuation and the spelling. I unfortunately yes. don't have the original copy, so I don't know what it says in the, in the Target book, but it says 217 pounds here in the uh, U.S. reprint. And is that because a character is talking about his weight in the – in the episodes? So there's a moment in the middle of the story where the doctor and Sarah Jane are kidnapped by a chauffeur who's working for Harrison Chase, who's the story's villain. The doctor yes. is trying to fight back against the chauffeur. Uh, the doctor eyed the drop one more time, noted the position of the revolver, and launched himself into space. Thud! Exclamation point. The chauffeur crumpled like a rag doll as the doctor's 217 pounds slammed into him, is the actual line on page 49 of the Pinnacle book. That's in the middle of chapter, towards the beginning of chapter five, if you have your copy in front of you. Uh, in the middle of um, chapter five. Yes, I wouldn't have the actual page number. Yeah, and 
Ah, here we are. Oh, yes. I, what I wrote was, yeah, I did. The chauffeur crumpled like a rag doll as the doctor's 15 and a half stones slammed into him. Oh, wow. I think I must have, I must have asked Tom how, mu how much he weighed. Or I yeah, I guess I must have found, found that out somehow. And somebody sitting in the Pinnacle Production offices on 42nd Street in Manhattan sat there with their uh, slide rule and calculated 15 and a half stone into 217 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I have a daughter now who is the same age that I was when I first read these books, 11 years old, and following her education and sitting on her school board. What I've noticed is that books for American children today are heavily regimented in terms of word count and vocabulary. So everyone is assigned a reading level in school, and you can only read books that are specifically tailored to that reading level. So for the primary grades, it goes from levels A through Z, or, or Z, I suppose. And now that she's uh, closer to high school, uh, they have middle grade fiction and YA fiction. Everything is very heavily regimented and tailored towards specific age groups, which is not the way that I was raised in the 70s and 80s when you would read whatever you could get your hands on, even if you couldn't quite decode it. One of the things that grabs me today, looking at Mask of Mandragora, which I have coming up on this program in a few months, the vocabulary in Mask of Mandragora, and here I am, a reader in my mid to late 40s, I was looking up some of those words myself because I wasn't familiar with them. So you had an incredibly rich vocabulary style writing these books. And another line that stayed with me in the Seeds of Doom book, I read it at 11 or 12, and I've never forgotten it. You refer to Scorby, who's um, played by John Chalice. You, you refer to him as a repressed psychopath, which I thought was a wonderfully compact and descriptive phase, and it fits the character like a, like a hand in a glove. Do you recall if you were paying homage to other writers with certain turns of phrase or vocabulary words? You had mentioned, of course, some of the books that had a big influence on you when you were a younger reader. Do you recall if you were consciously trying to emulate anybody else's style? No, not really. I just, I think I'd probably uh, worked out how people wrote crime stories because I'd read a fair bit, you know, like I suppose Earl Stanley Gardner and sort of uh, Raymond Chandler. And um, well, I'd re I've read a lot, you know, I mean, I, I'd re I've read, I'd, I, sp I think I must have read the odd. Alistair MacLean, I remember reading at some point, and uh, I may have read the Bond movies, but uh, my, I had a lot of literary background. You know, I did a English literature at Cambridge, so I've read a lot. Um, but um, I don't know. I just uh, no, I had I didn't model myself on, on anybody. I just thought keep it. Uh, you know, it, it, it must be imaginative in some way, uh, and a bit of cliché is okay. I mean, uh, of course, because actually clichés are clichés for a reason because they're very economical descriptions of things. And so, you know, I, I've just read a little bit before I, I, I spoke to you and I just read a few of the early, and I see this, I've used... Um, character says something he has a feeling of impending doom you know you couldn't have a better cliche than that but it, but it's that's useful for for the younger you know 
they might not have heard that phrase before, you know. But you can't just rely on cliches. You have to coin your own uh, uh, original uh, twist on 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 a, a description, you know. And and I think the easy thing. What what's so easy about it? of these novelizations, you've got the image in your head. Instead of having to sort of conjure up the image and then come up with the phrase that describes what you're seeing in your mind, you, you, you just remember what you saw on the screen. And, you know, and usually the words, you know, the useful little phrases and things, you know, come to mind. So um, I think I just was responding to how do you, turn um you know a, a screenplay into a novel it's usually the other way around um so it was a direct sort of response to the the screenplay itself that if you like formulated this style that i fell into if that makes sense to you no, it certainly does. And the phrase repressed psychopath I thought was so good that I'm surprised I haven't seen it turn up in other works of literature because it really fits the character so, so well. And it really gets down to the heart of John Chalice's performance on TV, which even to this day, 40 plus years later, is one of my favorite Doctor Who uh, guest villain turns. I thought he was a wonderful <laughs> character. Yeah. I guess my last question is, in preparation for your writing the novelization, were you given any of the earlier books, such as the Terrence Dix books, to read? Do you recall that? I don't think so. I might have done, but I, I can't remember. Um, I might have dipped into the book he'd written uh, because it might have just given me an idea idea of the style and you know, what the target audience was and how he did it. Um, so I I'm, I'm probably think that he did, that I did, you know, dip into it, but I don't remember, you know, that well that I made a big thing about it, but I probably would have had a quick look at it, yeah. All or nothing, I'll have to risk it. Doctor. Hello, it's nice to see you listen. If it's ionized plasma, it's molecular, and by now must be spread pretty thinly among Hieronymus and the brethren. Exhausted. Exhausted. That's the answer. Doctor, I have Listen. a question. Could you get me one of these and a length of wire? What wire? Wire. Yes, wire. It must be at least 150 years since wire drawing machines were invented. There must be some about the place. Well, if you spoke to the palace armourer. Good idea. I'll do that. What was your question? I wanted to ask you about the mask tonight. Everything's arranged, but it could still be cancelled if you... You're going to hold a dance. Well, only if you don't think it's too dangerous. Dangerous? Dear Duke, you've got lots of guests to entertain. Of course you must hold a hop. Sarah will love it. Ask her. Oh, yes, just my scene. And Giuliano, save me a costume. I love a knees up. We're talking this week about the Mask of Mandragora novelization, and we were showing each other our copies before recording. You have the original Target, and I have the uh, U.S. Pinnacle edition with the Harlan Ellison introduction inside, talking about how much he likes your era of the show. Yes, it was nice to read that uh, when I, I saw that. Um, uh, and I think it was one of the occasions when I began to realise that um, my series uh, hadn't just disappeared, you know, <laughs> into the universe, that actually it was drawing attention from, uh, you know, sci-fi writers and as well as sci-fi buffs. And, uh, 
And there was, a, you know, more interest in the States than I realized in the program. For a good at least five or ten years in the States, the only Doctor Who that was being shown were the first four Tom Baker seasons, most of which was yours. So you were getting a lot of exposure here in the States. And uh, I came in a little bit later, but most of my friends who started watching the show in the late 70s, early 80s started with your stories. Well, I did. You know, I didn't know that. I thought that um, that the John Pertwee series had been widely you know, distributed. I think it was a PBS or something. Uh, I thought that was uh, widely viewed. I didn't know that uh, that Tom's um, series, you know, were were seen first. I think there may have been some John Pertwee first, but. At that point, the show had not yet reached PBS. It was still airing, I think, on what we call commercial stations. But when PBS got the package, it was primarily your material at first. And then when the Sci-Fi Channel got the package in the 1990s, again, it was your era of the show, those those first four seasons of the Tom Baker. Uh-huh. Right. Well, I didn't know that. You've clarified something now. That's really interesting. Yeah. And... I I did a complete rewatch of your era last year, earlier during the pandemic, shortly before I started this project. And one of the things that fascinated me about your era of the show is you are largely remembered for the uh, gothic uh, horror, which there's a lot of that in season 13. But season 14, which is the season that Mandragora kicks off, does a very interesting pivot from gothic horror into hard science fiction. So this is the year where you did The China Syndrome for about five years before that movie was made with Hand of Fear. This is the season where you predicted virtual reality about 20 years early with Deadly Assassin. And this was the season where you built a whole serial around the three laws of robotics, which were propounded by my grandmother's old next-door neighbor, Isaac Asimov. So that was really interesting to me. And Mandragora, I think, is the perfect story to open the season 14 because it's set in the late 15th century. It's literally set at the boundary between superstition and hard science, uh, to misquote the opening credits of The Twilight Zone. Do you recall specifically how Mask of Mandragora came to be and who was responsible for pitching which elements of the story? Yeah, I absolutely remember everything about it. Um, First of all, I should say that um, some of the story ideas that emerged in uh, this final season uh, had been there pretty much from the beginning uh, because I'd um, read quite a lot of science fiction as sort of homework, you know, once I knew I was going to produce the show and I had the time to do that. So although I did have a sort of generalized background of uh, having read some, you know, classics, sci-fi classics. Um, I did a bit of homework, and uh, uh, and one of um, the books I read was I Robot, um, and that, you know, the, the the premise under that was fascinating. I thought, oh yeah, we'd love to, you know, I'd like to do that story at some point. Um, and um, I don't, I don't remember exactly when, but but some of these story ideas were were bubbling up in my mind or, you know, Bob Holmes and I had sort of tossed them around quite early in our relationship. So it wasn't as if we only had these ideas when it came to planning the third season. But 
some of them, yes, you know, we they emerged at that time. So this is sort of, I don't remember what triggered this, well, and I don't know when this was, but I I was idly watching television, which I don't didn't do, didn't have much time, but I, I must have been idly looking at something, and um, it was Roger Corman's Mask of the Red Death, um, which I sort of just watched a few minutes of, really. Um, and I didn't even know that it was based on an Edgar Allan Poe story. Uh, this whole idea that I, I knew all about the Gothic origins of my story ideas, or often Bob's story ideas rather than mine, um, you know, meant that I knew all about that, but I didn't have that background. I had a sort of basic background of, um, of the Romantic era, you know, the literary uh, era, but I was not a horror movie uh, watcher or fan and didn't know, I'd never seen anything with Vincent Price in or, you know, uh, yeah, although, you know, there was a film made of this. So, so in fact, I didn't know that till I read it about 10 minutes ago. So um, the, where it, the germ came, not because I knew about the Poe story, it was because um, I saw that, those snatches of the Corman movie. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, what, like you did just now at the beginning in your summary, I thought, yeah, Italy, the clash, the emergence, you know, the Renaissance um, emerging, um, the clash with superstition um, and, you know, Machiavelli and, um, you know, powerful princes. I thought, wow, that is a fantastic um, historical period for us to go to. You know, there's a lot we could do with it. Um, and at the same time that I had that idea, I knew where we could film it. Uh, when I was a student, uh, at the end of, um, well, yeah, just at the end of being a stu uh, university student, um, I um, worked for a travel company in the summer and, and taking Americans around the UK. And these were lovely people. They were American. Um, a lot of them were church goers, but they particularly, they loved historical um, buildings and cathedrals and things. So we did a sort of mini tour around cathedrals around the UK. And when we were up sort of near North Wales, we had a stopover in Port Merion. And that was the first time I'd been to Port Merion myself. And I still didn't know, even after we'd made this program, uh, that actually the prisoner had been shot there. Yes. I, you know, people think, oh, he must have known that that was, but no, I, I didn't. The reason I knew about Port Marion was because I'd been there as a student with these lovely middle-aged Americans, you know, um, uh, stopping off to see cathedrals around the UK and they were a delightful group of people. Um, it was, uh, it was just one of those things. Like, yeah, we can, we know I can, we can do it in Italian town, you know, it's all there or we can mock it up, you know? Um, so that's, that was the birth of the idea. Then I, so I then said to Bob, I don't know when I said, look, this is a great idea. And the third factor, which really just all came together uh, great syn synchronicity is that an old friend of Bob's uh, writer, Louis Marx, and someone I knew because 
I started television in one of the ITV companies, which was ATV. And Louis Marx was uh, um, a very successful writer for ATV. Um, he, he created a, a, a soap opera for them called Honey Lane, which is very popular. Uh, but actually, he's, he, in person, Louis was, he's, he's no longer with us, I'm afraid, but died a few years ago. But um, he was actually a very literate uh, I think he might have been a doctor, uh, doctorate, but I mean, he, he was a very literate man and a, a specialist in his Italian history. <laughs> so Bob said, I know the right, exactly the person that can write this. And it was wonderful because Louis, he, no, I don't think he'd ever writ written for Doctor Who, but he knew how to write popular television. He knew how to write it to fit within studios shooting it in the old four camera, you know, way of doing it. We didn't right. do things on film. So he understood all about the dramatic unities. And, all the, uh, uh, and you know, later on, he, he was also a very prestigious um, BBC producer in his own right. I mean, he did the last, the latest version of Middlemarch, which was very successful but, um, several years before he died at the BBC. So he, he was a man, you know, there was a lot to... Louis and um, and so we got the drafts from him and yeah they needed a little bit of um, sort of Bob Holmesian sort of sprucing up I think uh, Louis was too polite and gentle a soul to have cast the Count Frederico in quite the sort of way that Bob um, gave him more steel and ruthlessness. But I was, was going to say, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Some of the things that the Count says as insults are pure Robert yeah. Holmes. Good no, absolutely. Morbius. Yeah. Duke of Milan, sir. I heard. Get that muck out of here. Bring me clean linen. Hurry, you wolf. Fox-faced old blowhard, the Doge will be here within the hour. His advance riders are carousing in the taverns even now. What's to be done? He must be greeted. That clown of a Chancellor can do it. Say I've been stricken by an ague. Before night comes, Rossini, you and I have work to do. I have a score of men searching for He's not returned to the palace. Then we must search the city. He's skulking in some stinking hovel. Oh, no, I've gone too far now. Before sunrise, I want to see Giuliano's liver fed to the dogs. Yeah, they are. They are. But, but actually, you know, Louis did a great job. Um, and uh, it, was, it was all there in the first drafts, you know. So that's how it came about. I believe Louis Marx had actually written Planet of Evil for you the year before, which... Oh, yeah, of course he has. Yeah, he'd already, he'd already written for us, but I meant... Yeah, I didn't, didn't think he'd written them for the show before that, if you see what I mean. Right. Planet of Evil had been... The first two episodes were Forbidden Planet, which had come out about 20 years earlier. That was a very big movie in my household. But the back half of Planet of Evil is the movie Alien, five years before Alien got made, which also fascinates me. Yeah, well, I had, as a boy, seen uh, Forbidden Planet, and it made, uh, you know, it, it, it was something that really remained with me. 
And it wasn't just pure plagiarism. It was, it was that I was looking all the time to see a way that we could bring in what I would call the monstrous element, the alien element on, or the monstrous element into our stories without having to put an actor in a rubber suit uh, because that only works up to a point. Um, and so I was always looking for ways that we could, uh, what shall I say, fragment the monstrous element to sort of parcel it out. It doesn't have to be one, you know, uh, baddie, evil uh, opponent like a Davros or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, you, you do need that opponent, and we've got it in the, in the Mask of Mandragora, but it was great if you can... Uh, find these other elements that that bring you know the jeopardy and the fear and the atmosphere um and so that in a way which which we did with mask of dragora you know the Mag mandragora helix um and it but the uh so that, that the, the forbidden planet idea was was um that we could I can apply that to our, you know, characters going to this this new planet, you know, uh, well, this sort of odd, you know, evil planet. Um, so it wasn't exactly just, you know, stealing. Uh, I mean, it would have been nice if we could have done a better monster, but that's that was all we could do, you know. But it 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 served the the idea, you know, it served its purpose, um, and that was because there were lots of lots of these sort of ideas if you like that i i did sort of um steal or or sort of refer to like um the robots of death you know the idea uh, that um you know they were programmed you know not to be a danger to humans and then one of them is rogue you know but that's such a good idea you know but then we we took it and treated it in our own way um so yes i did uh, i was um sort of filching half ideas here and there, you know. Um, but uh, I think that you can do that with Doctor Who without, uh, you know, uh, but, but as long as you kind of incorporate it into the sort of established D DNA of the program itself, you know. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't consider it stealing. I mean, you're certainly not stealing chunks of dialogue or just doing the same story over again. Oh, you're gosh, taking, no, 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 no. We never want to do that. No, no. No, you're taking the kernel of an idea. Like the beginning of Seeds of Doom has some similarities to Think from Another World, but it takes it in such a unique and fresh direction. So you have these roots, but you certainly grow them into very interesting products. Well, I don't know what you just – I mean, that story you've just uh, – or film, whatever it is – I've never heard of it before. So oh. I think the thing is that so many of these ideas are um, are, are common, you know, in, in the sci-fi world. And, oh, that must be that. And it's not. It's just that there's only a certain, you know. Um, we did a lot of stories with, um, you know, possession because it suited our dramatic uh, constraints of, uh, of how we could create horror and uh, sort of, adventure and uh, danger and jeopardy um, within the, the confines with limited filming and, you know, confines of, of studio shooting. So uh, we had a lot of that, but, you know, Quater Mass, uh, you know, you could mention a lot of, uh, you know, Alien, you know, a lot of stories that are with that idea in in it. So so a lot of idea, our ideas were sort of 
you know, uh, our ideas, but, you know, they exist anyway in the world once you immerse yourself into the sci-fi uh, world, you know. So you had mentioned, uh, of course, the man in the, in the rubber mask or the monster in the rubber costume. And another great thing about Mask of Mandragora is the masks that are worn by the uh, Brotherhood of Demnos. And they both feature heavily on the covers of our respective novelization copies. These are really striking, and uh, the story, the camera spends a lot of time looking at them. Do you recall having any design input into the mask, or was that all the design staff? Uh, I just can't remember who did that. Uh, well, I we, I didn't I didn't draw anything, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would have had input by as I always did, which was to try and communicate as much to the uh, production team uh you know what the spirit or of the show was what what was the sort of guiding principle and what what were we trying to achieve with it and uh and and yes we wanted those to be scary uh but of their era you know in a way historically and uh it was also quite a good thing really because rather than pretending it you know, putting a mask on somebody and then pretending they're an alien creature, you know, it's got to be brilliant. I mean, it's much better these days, but in, you couldn't do it very well. But if you say, well, no, we're not, we're, we're not pretending, you know, that these are masks, you know, uh, but they're still um, nasty, uh, you know, yes. and, uh, and very sort of powerful. Um, so that's another way that we, we sort of brought all these different elements which in themselves were potent in creating the atmosphere, the the the, the sense of evil, uh, darkness. Um, you know, the, 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 and the, even when the Brotherhood are walking around just in black, you know, cloaks. Uh, you know, so the whole thing sort of builds it up. You know, all the details. Uh, one more question I wanted to ask about the television story before we turn to talking about the book that you wrote. It was mentioned on the DVD text commentary for Mask. I think that was written by Martin Wiggins. Uh, this story does appear to have elements of Hamlet in it. Well, Hamlet plus astrologers. Uh, was there a conscious choice uh, at, at the time to tell a story that incorporated bits of Hamlet, such as the villainous uncle killing the father? Or is it just inevitable that if you do TV long enough, you're going to wind up quoting Hamlet at some point? Uh, yeah, I... I... Never thought of that connection before, to be honest. Uh, I, I think you, I think Bob was probably just following the dramatic unities. You know, you've got a story to tell, keep it, you know, to a small number of uh, actors that we could afford, but so keep it into the, keep it in the family, you know. <laughs> um, uh, I think that's probably, uh, I, I, I don't know whether that was ever a conscious um, echoing of anything. No. Uh, although the Hamlet story is so good, I guess uh, it's uh, it's going to crop up in a lot of places because it's it's a very universal story in many respects. So let's talk then about how you came to write uh, the novelization. This comes out in December 1977. You had novelized Seeds of Doom first, as we talked about a couple of months ago. Do you recall the chain of events that led you to write this particular novelization? Um. Well, all, no, I can't. Well, all, all I remember is that uh, Caesar Doom went down very well, and 
either, either I think they said, would you like to do another one? I think that's, that's how it happened, you know. And so, um, but I think I chose the story. Uh, uh, which one did, I think they said, which one would you like to do? I don't think they came to me with the, with the story they wanted to do, but uh, I, I really can't remember. But um, I th I'm, it's likely that I would say, uh, I said, oh, I'd quite like to do this one because it's such a great setting, you know, it's a nice story to write. Do you have recollections about the research and writing process uh, for this book? And I want to preface that. We had talked a little bit last time about how Seeds of Doom does eliminate some of the TV plot strands, which didn't tie into the actual story itself. Uh, this book um, is longer. Uh, the pinnacle version is 140 pages, which is pretty long for a target book. And you have just about every scene from television represented in the book. You also have much broader vocabulary and very rich descriptions. It's a very multi-layered and cerebral book as opposed to a straight-on horror story. Do you recall consciously how you chose the prose and the vocabulary for this book compared to Seeds of Doom? Because I thought this was really an excellent read. Mm, I just read a bit of it myself, which I haven't read for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever. Um, and what I liked uh, was uh, the opening of the story, uh, the first few chapters, is, is my economy. Uh, but I did, I think what I did... Uh, well was to um, sort of round out the characters, but without lots of description. I, I, I think I must have chosen, I mean, some of the description, descriptive, you know, phrases and adjectives are, uh, you know, of a cliche type. And we talked about this last time, that you have to go for the obvious up to a point, um, you know, uh, feeling terrified and, you know, horrified and all that. But um, what I, again, what I want to do is to, is, is set the scene richly in the mind of, of the reader. But I think I did it very um, economically. Um, but I, I, but what I tried to do in the television series was to create a very strong sense of atmosphere to a story you know, where are we, whether it's a, an alien planet or a time in history, uh, which our, you know, young readers or viewers wouldn't know much about, uh, and, and to be uh, very specific about it. So um, I, yeah, I paid attention to it, but it came very quickly, very easily to read. I, I wasn't struggling over each sentence. It was the very... I remember it being very fluid. Uh, you know, I wrote it very quickly, um, but it was a joy to do because it was all in my head anyway. Uh, I think I'd, I, I think I'd imagined a lot of the story before it, it it became a television program anyway, um, and so uh, yeah, I, I, I think you need you need enough. Um, well, you you just have to. F flesh out uh, the characters a little bit more. Um, and I did that, I think, with some nice little, just reading the first few um, chapters again, little details, uh, uh, little, uh, you know, glances and, you know, just hinting a bit more uh, on, on the page than was really there just in the uh, dramatised dialogue. 
And it's a very vivid set of characters. You have the scar-faced captain, you have mm. the enlightened prince, you have the nasty uncle, you have the uh, mystic astronomer who falls prey to Mandragora. There's certainly, there must be very fun characters to think about as you're putting the book oh, together. Oh, they were wonderful. Head. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just remember that early on, I, I just added something about Hieronymus, uh, something, it was like, um, uh, although people knew him well, uh, he, you know, the, the, there was, they felt uneasy in his company. Now, you know, that was not in the script. That wasn't, you know, nobody. But it was those little additions that I think I just fleshed out the cat. Well, because I, I thought, well, yeah, you know, they're, they're great little characters to do, you know. Uh, but keep the, keep the thing, you know, I think it's a great opening, actually, I must say, uh, for the series. You know, bang, straight in. And that came straight from the Roger Corman memory, I think, you know, scattering the peasants. I don't know what it was in the movie, but I thought, yeah, you know, that's that's a very dramatic uh, opening. You know, these, this beautiful landscape, and then suddenly hell breaks out, you know, and it's all done in a few paragraphs, uh, which I think is the, is the key, is, is to be dramatic, be vivid, but don't hang around. Um, but you must give the reader uh, a sense of, of who the people are and how they affect each other. It, you, you know, certainly works very well. Uh, you had been to Port Marion, of course, as you said. Do you recall doing any extra research onto 15th century Italy when writing? Because I saw a lot of period vocabulary when you're talking about the architecture and the sounds that you would have heard in the village of San Martino. Uh, not that I know of. No, I don't. I just sort of probably made that up. <laughs> um, I didn't specifically do any research. No. Well, you'd been there, of course, so I'm sure that certainly played a large part because you would have had uh, Port Marion in your head, having been there and given tours of. Well, it. no, I think that I think what I had. Uh, no, I didn't have Port Marion in my head. What I had was a more idealized, real Italian village. Oh wow! Um, it, when I was writing the the book but um i followed the uh the locations that the story visits you know the castle rooms uh you know the deathbed of the of the ruler and um and passageways and you know things like that uh, so i followed the um uh the scene the, the locations that, that are in the story but uh, in my mind every location opened up more, uh, if you see what I mean. So it, uh, I hope, anyway, that the, the, the novelization feels that it's taking place, you know, in a, a, a real big sort of Italian landscape, if you know what I mean. Uh, you could probably draw a map of, of the palace just based on your descriptions of the book, of, of the colonnades and what the rooms look like and the, the furniture and the decorations. And then, of course, the catacombs, too, are very vividly portrayed. Mm. Have you had a chance to hear the audiobook of this? There was an audiobook that came out probably about 10, 15 years ago, narrated by Tim Piggott Smith, who had a very impressive deep voice. And he had played Marco yeah, in this story. Yeah, he he was. I mean, he developed, you know, a wonderful career. He became a very notable actor. Um, and uh, no, I didn't. I hadn't heard. I haven't heard that. No. 
it's definitely a good compliment to the pros. Um, you have great pros, and he certainly has a great voice. So after the mask book came out, it was uh, three years when your next and final novelization, Keys of Marinus, uh, came out. Uh, do you recall if you had intended to novelize more stories from your era, or were you very busy with, with your other work at this point and didn't have time for more novelizations? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I think it probably was that. Um, and I think probably Terence Dix uh, probably had snaffled all the others <laughs> because he was a sort of, you know, a mini factory of novelizations. Um, mm. So probably, you know, by the time I, I had limited time, you know, I was busy, busy, busy producing. And I think probably uh, they kind of just went to him. I think probably he, perhaps he had an overall deal. I don't know. But he, that, that probably there weren't that many titles to do. Uh, I can't remember how I came to do Keys of Mariners. I'd never seen it. I wasn't interested in it. And uh, so I don't know why I, I did it, to be honest. <laughs> I know Target... Uh, got all your stories into print as quickly as possible. There are some eras where they were still doing novelizations into the late 80s and early 90s, but I think all of your stories had already been novelized by the time the 1970s drew to a close. So the book before this one was uh, Towns of Wang Chiang, which Terrence Dix had done. And then oh, Face right. of Evil, I think, came out immediately on the other side. So Yeah, I think I'm right then. I think that's the story, is that he was... He was, you know, he's uh, grabbing it all and doing it, and he he could churn them out very quickly. I would have loved to have done Talons of Wang Chiang. Uh, it would have been a wonderful one to do. Um, uh, have you read it? It's actually the episode that's coming out directly before this one, so I've been rereading it this week, and I have the actual Target edition of this. All oh, right, and it does, is it good? I mean, do you do a good job? Uh, considering that this was the eighth book that Terence wrote in 1977 alone, so you could forgive him for just having no energy left. But mm. instead, this is 140 pages, same length as Mask of Mandragora, and he really plays into the Victorian era, and the language is very rich. And this is okay. also a very enjoyable book to read. It's one of Terence's longer and, I think, more heroic efforts. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, it was a wonderful set of scripts by Bob Holmes and uh, wonderful comedy. I mean, fabulous, uh, you know. So Bob had a way with insults and characters and dialogue, and it's, it's just a joy to read some of his expressions. Yeah. <laughs> if you had the chance, were there any other stories in your era, apart from Towns, that you'd like to have a go at novelizing, even now perhaps? Uh. I don't think they pay much money to, <laughs> no. to novelize series uh, books. I mean, um, uh, I suppose he did Pyramids of Mars, did he? Yeah, he did. Uh, he did. Yeah. So that well, they're all done, probably. I, I mean, mine have all been done. Uh, yes. I, uh, what would I like to have done? Um, yeah, may, maybe Robots of Death, because the challenge would have been to. Uh, construct well follow the construction but actually make it into like an Agatha Christie uh, yes, how, how yes. do you do that you know so that would have been an, an interesting challenge um much trying to think really what other stories 
Yeah, the, 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 Ter- the Terrence version of Robots of Death is only about 100 pages long, so it's certainly much shorter than his talons. There would be room to rewrite that and put, unless you say, a lot more Agatha Christie atmosphere. Yes, and you could do a lot more uh, about being on that uh, mining sh- sort of ship, or whatever you want to call it, uh, miner. I mean, the whole... Um, yeah, you, you, you could give you know give it an interesting setting. Um, yeah, I can't think off the top of my head really. Just think, of, what what other ones are your favourites of my programs? Oh, um, that would be a very you did sixteen, probably about at least half of those are in my top tier. Ark in Space, uh, which Ian Martyr wrote the novelization of that, is a yeah. all time favourite. Pyramids of Mars, uh, Mask of Mandragora, Deadly Assassin, which I covered on this show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that would have been really tricky to novelize. I uh, don't think I'd ha- I'd have a go at that one. <laughs> it was really tricky. Um, that um, tricky for all sorts of reasons because um, the, the 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 rule of thumb really of our era, well, probably any, anyone's era, probably is that um, you don't really know what's going on in the doctor's head. Uh, you, you know, he's 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 an enigma, really. Um, but in that story, the deadly assassin, you for that to work, you'd have to be talking about how he felt. What 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 you know? It ha- would have had to be very sub. Even if it was in written in the third person, uh, it you'd have to really be allowed into the doctor's inner inner life. Uh, you, you know, because it's a battle. Well, you know, you know what it is. It's you know, virtual reality and a, and this battle. So, you, so it's all about what he's going through, really. Um, and so that would be a very challenging novelization. I well, I guess it's been done by Terence. I don't know how he managed it. He. One of the bits that I remember vividly from his novelization of Deadly Assassin is he dips into the doctor's head and he expresses the doctor's disappointment when the villain turns out to be Chancellor Goth working for the master. And he laments the fact that the master was able to turn Chancellor Goth's ambition against him and turn him into a bad guy. So that's, that's a very effective bit of writing, I thought, even though it's a rather short book. Yeah. Oh, well, he solved the problem because that would have been the problem that you're, you're actually inside the, you know, you in in, in the, uh, the doctor's mind whereas normally he's a he's an objective you look at him uh, you know uh, i mean i've never you know say oh the doctor felt this or the doctor i never do that in any of the novelizations um because he's this enig- enigma you know you can't you don't you don't, don't get inside him you know you can observe him from the outside that's how you have to tell them the novelizations there was a very nice bit that you added in Mask of Mandragora. At the climax of the story, the Doctor is confronting Hieronymus in the catacombs, and the Doctor mm-hmm. has hardwired himself into the ground to try and drain off the energy from the helix so that mm. the energy is exhausted and it doesn't have the ability to conquer the Earth. And it's not really talked about on television, but you add a little bit at the end of one of the last chapters where the grounding wire snaps and the doctor has to absorb that last bit of energy himself without it being grounded into the earth. And he's worried that if the energy is too strong, he'll be destroyed. So you did actually narrate the doctor's trepidation at that point. Then you make it a You're chapter. Right, yes. Yes. It, I think that was in our plot, uh, but probably wasn't clear 
in the program uh the you know the uh the tele the television version but i think it was that that was the plot yeah that was a uh, rodney bennett who also directed arc and space terrific director but yeah i guess it's missing a shot of the wire snapping that would have been hard to show in the dark i guess yeah maybe well, since the keys were hidden, I have worked on this machine and modified it so that when they're replaced... And when they're replaced, it would mean that your machine is irresistible and you can overcome and control the boards again. Yes. Hmm. yes. Surely there must be someone you can send for these keys. Through the years, all my friends, all my followers have gone. They have never returned. <laughs> Last year, I sent my daughter. She has not come back. All I have now to comfort me is the distant echo of her voice, the imagined sound of her footsteps. But now your coming has brought new hope. Oh, yes, yes. You must find the keys for me. So the book we are talking about today is The Keys of Marinus, which was published in 1980. A couple of curious things about this book. First, this was a couple of years after you had left Doctor Who and moved on to other projects. And second, it's the only one of your books that is not an adaptation of one of your own serials. So if you can recall, how did this book exactly come to be, and how did you wind up with a William Hartnell story to write? I can't truly uh, recall the details uh, I don't. Either I would have spoken to Target Books and said, um, "I can fit another novelization in. Do you want me to do one?" Um, or maybe they contacted me and asked me. Um, and I can't remember anything more than that. I'm afraid. Looking at the David J. Howe book, which is the definitive history of the Target line. It mentions that Target had reached out to you in the late 1970s because Terence Dix had been writing all of the books. And there are, of course, logistical problems when you have only one author doing 10 books a year. So they reached out to you and David Whitaker, who had been the show's story editor back at the very beginning. And each of you were asked to write a book. Unfortunately, David Whitaker passed away before finishing his, but we have yours do you recall if you were given a choice of story or if they said, uh, you're doing Keys of Marinus, uh, please have it back in three weeks? Huh. Uh, I don't think it had to be that quickly. Um, <laughs> um, do you know, I really can't recall. Uh, I don't think I was given a choice because I wouldn't have chosen Keys of Marinus. So I, I think he, they probably needed someone to novelize this one. Now, of course, there are drawbacks to writing a story that at this point was about 15 years old, and I'm not sure if the video was known to exist in 1980. Uh, so my first question related to that is, were you watching Doctor Who in its first season, 1963-64? I think I saw part of the very first episode. I think that's all I saw. Mm, so you would not have seen Keys of Marinus at the original release. Do you recall if you had the chance to watch it or watch the surviving video as you wrote the book? Yes. Um, I wouldn't have written it if that wasn't the case. Um, there were, uh, uh, there was a, uh, 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 there were, um, 
I don't know how many episodes this was, but uh, they were in black and white, and some of them were not uh, very good. I've got a feeling that some might have been on tape and some of them may, may have been telecine copies, which in those days they used for sales abroad. Or maybe it was all telecine, which would not have been a very good quality. But I I saw all the episodes, um, just like I did when I novelized the other stories. Do you also recall if you had been given Terry Nation's original scripts to work with, or if you were just working from the surviving video? I think I must have had some scripts. It's very difficult to do it just from the dialogue you know, having to kind of, you know, you couldn't really, um, I think in those days there was no way or it didn't exist on a VHS or Philips or Sony tape that I could uh, look at it at my leisure and, and keep stopping it. So I'm pretty certain I was given the scripts and I was shown the episodes just to give me a feeling of what it looked like, what the visuals were. What I found interesting, especially, is when we were talking about Seeds of Doom a few months ago, we talked about how you consciously omitted certain scenes from the novelization because they didn't really propel the storytelling. I have an opposite situation in Keys of Marinus. There's actually one scene that you have in the book that is not on television. I was wondering if you recall if that was your own invention or if that perhaps was in the Terry Nation script and for whatever reason did not get filmed. <clears throat> what scene was that then? It's on pages 94 and 95 of the paperback novelization, and it's during the trial sequence in the city of Millennius. The doctor has a meeting with the two native Marinus characters, Altos and Sabita, and they're talking legal strategy. And that is nowhere to be found on television. Oh, yeah. That legal... It's a scene between Ian and Altos and Sabita rather than the doctor. Uh, I think I misspoke. Yeah. I'd... Um... I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have totally invented that. Um, to be honest, I think it must have been in the script. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder why that ended up not being filled. Probably for timing reasons. Obviously, time but, and studio space yeah. was very tight back in those days. So you had written this book forty years ago, and you read it for the first time recently in preparation for this interview. What was the experience like taking a look at your own words again forty years later for the first time in so long? It was really weird. Uh, <laughs> apart from the first paragraph, I couldn't remember a word that I'd ever written of Keys of Marinus. Uh, and it was like reading uh, a thriller by somebody else. <laughs> I mean, it really. And I, I thought, well, that's, that's quite good. Well, you know, that's pacey. Oh, I couldn't remember anything at all. Um, and... I thought about this. Um, it's something to do with the fact that the story was never in my head at any stage, unlike my other stories. Um, and that I have a very powerful visual memory and um, the visuals that I was shown, uh, I, you know, I saw in one viewing, whereas the visuals of the other programs I produced were much, you know, I saw them several times and, and they remained in my mind and I had my original sort of story ideas in my head. And so um, 
it, the, and the, the actual black and white uh, version of this story um, was, you know, not very memorable. I mean, that was the problem with the visuals in those days. Um, and so I think that's the only reason that um, I haven't retained any of this. I mean, I, I, I take everything back. When everybody's, when people come up to me and say, oh, we like Keys of Marin, oh, no, that's, that's not my favourite. I don't know why, because it's a rollicking story by Terry Nation. Uh, it's got lots of things in it which could, we could talk about. It's very pacey. Um, it's gripping and uh, it keeps moving. It's full of incident. Uh, it's full of jeopardy and surprises and all the rest of it. And it's a jolly good read. <laughs> Keys of Marinus has, I think, one of the less remembered reputations from the first William Hartnell season. It was a, as I recall, it was a replacement script. Terry Nation was going to do a historical and something else fell through. So they had to commission this on very short notice. And they decided to make it a succession of B-movies. So every week there's a different set of sets and a different set of supporting characters or antagonists. So it's a succession of one-episode stories strung out in a row. And this unfortunately strained the production budget to the limit. Now that we have these things upscale to high-quality digital video, there's just so many bloopers and production gaffes. There's the use of cardboard to represent a falling human. There is a lot of crew members visible through gaps in the set. Uh, there are other visual fluffs. Uh, so that's probably why Phantom does not have the happiest memory of the story. Plus, it being a Terry Nation story without his most famous creations. Well, yes, but, I, I think that what I—I I mean, I—I I must. I'm sure that I, uh, reading this now, uh, I think that I was responding to the all the um, good elements in Terry Nation's scripts. And all I did really was to clothe, clothe the, the script with enough uh, internal speculation from characters, uh, you know, scene setting. Uh, and, but, but mainly, I think all the work was there in Terry's script. His script, I would think, was much better than the actual finished program. He was a very prolific writer, he could turn his hand to different genres on television. He was one of the early TV, you know, commercial TV writers. Right. Uh, you know, Avengers and all that. What's interesting in and what you've just said is quite interesting is because this story, I think Terry was a bit of a magpie, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, uh, but I think he, he, I'm not saying he lifted plots, but for example, you've got crime story, um, characteristics in here. You've got the the locked room puzzle, which I think goes back to Sherlock Holmes. I'm not sure. Um, you've got uh, a, unmasking the villain in a bit like an Agatha Christie sort of way, um, a puzzle who it is, and 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 very well constructed um, possible suspects. You know, it, it's very well structured. Uh, and also you've got a courtroom. So all, all these are characteristics of, of crime stories. And so I think he's just either 
had those in his in his sort of notebook and thought, oh, I'll use that one. You know? <laughs> I can't believe it. And he was working probably at a great speed. So I think he incorporated that into this very forgiving umbrella format of Doctor Who, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, hats off to Terry. I think he, he you know, is terrific, really. Um, and uh, I was very surprised. And I, I think that the visuals, I mean, I, you know, the physical stuff and the fights and stuff like that and, uh, you know, the, the visuals of it all it made no impression on me at all except they looked really poor and wooden, you know. So I think the the strength of the novelization, if if you think it's a good one, is is in the original scripts rather than how they were realized on the screen is the way I would put it. Um, I think what was interesting, uh, when I read it, you said, what was my reaction? What I noticed was that, um, that how a few scenes that um, the William Hartnell doctor is in during this episode and uh, how much um, of the, you know, the other leads uh, are really uh, got a, a big role to play, you know, and the physical lead of Ian, um, is it Ian? Is, is that the character? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, you know, he, he does a lot of the action stuff. The other two um, uh, female companions are, you know, doing stuff. They're getting in the, the, there are subplots where there's a lot of jeopardy for them. And even some of the incoming guest roles also play their role, you know, as 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 sort of uh, giving all these different sort of little pathways in, in the narrative uh, to keep it. And it's all done within um, uh, interiors, which was the problem you know, the perennial problem of producing an adventure story like Doctor Who in limited interior sets. Uh, and although he stretched the budget, uh, you tell me, uh, it's still a very, you know, there's pretty good dramatic unities in this uh, story, uh, followed by Terry. So uh, that, you know, I was thinking, yeah, that he had the problem with Verity at right at the very beginning that I had when I inherited the show, although we had film, you know, more filming uh, than they ever had in these early years of the 60s. Um, but, uh, yeah, so those were the sort of things that I was reacting to when I was reading the novelization. And I thought, you know, it's a jolly good professional piece of storytelling, really, you know? I mean, Terry Nation's, uh, I'm talking about there, his scripts, you know, a very professional piece of early television adventure, really. Two of the things that impressed me most about the book, uh, I'll tell you one from when I was 11 reading it for the first time and one from this past week, uh, talking about the more recent thing. This is a black and white story. You have a lot of descriptions of colors in this book. You describe the colors of almost everything. Do you recall if that was a conscious choice to bring to life a, a black and white story where we obviously can't see the colors on screen? I don't think I thought about it like that, but I guess I was just trying to uh, create a more sort of luminous world for the reader. Um, I guess that was part of my novelist's sort of impulse really to 
just make it more attractive, you know, the, uh, the actual environment of the story. I don't, I don't mean to change things, but just to bring it to life, you know. And it works very well because, uh, as we as we said, this is a low-budget story, which is stretched to the limit. And you were, of course, writing a book that does not have any budget cuts. So you, you can make things as lavish as you want on the screen. And I think you certainly took advantage of that. The other point is that when I read this at 11 years old, at my very first Doctor Who convention in 1985 in Manhattan, I recall reading most of this book in the lobby in between events and the courtroom scenes, the courtroom scenes take up a good portion, probably the longest portion of the TV story because it's spread across two different episodes rather than confined to one. And that's when I realized that I was an 11 year old who actually enjoyed courtroom drama, which is not usually the province of 11 year old boys. (laughs) And here we are a few years later and I've made it my career. And I found the realism in the courtroom scenes excellent, both as written by Terry Nation and as filtered through your your book. Like the doctor is appointed as Ian's defense counsel. And the very first thing he does is ask for a postponement. And having that as my day job, I can tell you that is very, very painfully realistic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that must be Terry knowing a bit about that. Um, Because I didn't. Um, Well, how marvelous that you uh, you were uh, fired by uh, in one way by reading this story. I mean, that's amazing, fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you. You definitely put the seeds in my hand. And uh, getting back to Terry Nation, as you say, this is a very adventurous script with with a lot of action and movement. You had commissioned Terry Nation twice in your own ear. He had done Genesis of the Daleks, which is widely regarded as one of the best, if not the best, Doctor Who ever. And also, of course, the android invasion. Uh, do you recall any particular memories of working with Terry Nation? Not really, because um, he'd pretty much finished scripting Genesis uh, of the Daleks, certainly first drafts, uh, before I joined. Or, you know, in the early days when I was there, but, he, you know, he, he was delivering the scripts. Um, and... Um, I think that my, uh, I think it probably Bob Holmes said, you know, should we do another Terry Nation? And uh, I think I have a memory of um, saying, well, yeah, but not not a Dalek story. Uh, And I think I might have said, uh, we will do some Earthbound stories. Um, You know, can we do something that's a bit sci-fi? And... um, and so I think he probably went away. I didn't have personally a sort of conversation with Terry myself, although I, I, I had met him, but I, I, didn't invo- I wasn't involved in the actual script editing meetings. Um, but I, 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 I think we said that to him, and he said, I know, I'm going to do an Android story, um, which, I, which really excited me. And I think all the Android aspects of the story that he eventually wrote were terrific you know uh, i think we fell down on realizing the um you know the the aliens um but but all the android aspects of that story worked really really well um so i think that was it yes i'm up for one more terry nation story but can it be something you know sci-fi kind of thing uh, and so that's how the second one came about i think 
What's funny is the timing because I'm actually reading Android Invasion for uh, an episode coming out uh, this week. So I have the American edition of the Android Invasion novelization in front of me. And whatever faults the alien mask might have on screen, the cover illustration is incredibly gripping. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because you have Tom Baker and the android and then the crawl left to right. The problem with them. you know, actors in rubber masks is that um, in order to be sort of heard, they all seem to adopt, uh, unless their voice is treated like the Daleks, they all seem to um, uh, adopt a sort of booming Shakespearean delivery (laughs) because they can't be heard with these rubber masks. Um, I'm glad that the uh, the story works. Um, But that's... There were the, and also the what we did none of us spotted was that if they've got thick fingers like that, how can they be a high tech sort of race of people? You know, it it which it wasn't thought through properly by on the design side, if you know what I mean. Although the story somewhat leads into that, the villain in the android invasion is dispatched when he drops a vial of his own poison and and it spills on him and kills him which I guess could only happen if you have clumsy latex gloves instead of manipulative hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So coming back to Keys of Marinus for, for another question, I don't know if this was in your head, but this is a six-episode serial, and you wrote the book primarily in 12 chapters, and then there is a two-page epilogue at the end that's called Chapter 13. Uh when I was younger, I was always interested in stopping for the day at the cliffhanger and then reading the next episode the next day. So it was pretty easy with Keys of Marinus because your first four cliffhangers are all in the right place at the ends of chapters two, four, six, and eight. However, you put the episode five cliffhanger in mid-chapter so it doesn't fall into that neat two, 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 and two structure. Do you recall if you, when you were writing the book, if you were trying to keep the cliffhanger structure intact, chapter-wise, or if you were looking at other considerations? Because yeah, uh, it seemed to work really well, um, and I think I did try to do that. But I, you've just kind of vaguely moved a memory. I think that it was difficult to do towards the end. Um, there, I don't know whether there was more explanation or things moved a bit more rapidly. Uh, you know, and uh, so I had to, I remember thinking, yeah, hang on, I've got to find different endings, yeah, for the chapters. But I uh, I think it works when I read it, anyway. Uh, the book certainly made a huge impression on me at age 11, as we discussed. And reading it back this week, I was very much taken with the way that you tell the story in terms of the techno-thriller language and the use of color for a black and white story. You had mentioned that the doctor is absent for much of it, uh, so I think the very first year he was given a two-week vacation, and he took both weeks during this story. So it leaves a doctor-shaped hole in the middle. Fortunately, uh, William Russell, who is still alive with us today, uh, is very up to handling the challenge of being that secondary lead, being the two-fisted action yeah. hero in the middle bits. Yes. Well, what, what, what I meant to say earlier was that um, that way of handling the a doctor, because there was speculation that, there, that maybe an elderly actor might take over before I joined the program. And Bob Holmes, therefore, 
uh, was write, wrote Ian Martyr's Harry character in, which was just like a, an Ian character, to do the running and the heavy lifting, if you like. And so uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that's why... Well, I knew this, really, but it reminded me that was why Robert Holmes created those uh, the extra companion when I joined the program. He had those in, in the scripts, written into the scripts. Um, it's the same problem, you know, that they had in this story. Ian Martyr is very much like yourself, and that after his time on Doctor Who was over, he came back to the target line, and he ended up, he ended up writing, I think, close to 10 books over 10 years before his very, very untimely passing. Do you yeah. know if you've read any of the Ian Martyr novelizations? No, I, I knew that he did one. I didn't realize he, did, he carried on and did as many as that. No, I'm afraid I haven't, no. He is—he has a very visceral, uh, almost gory writing style, and he plays into the horror of the episodes that he's writing. So his novelization of the Ark in Space, for example, is much more graphic than you could have realized in studio. So if you're going to start with an Ian Martyr book, I would definitely recommend his take on the Ark in Space uh -huh, right. Interesting. Yeah. Was there any talk of you coming back to the Target books after Keys of Marinus? Because I know that your TV career was very, very busy in the 1980s, but I wondered uh, if you ever intended to return. Uh, I can't remember whether they asked me or not, uh, to be honest. Or maybe they did, and I said, no, I was too busy. But uh, I think I'd, I'd, I'd done my stint on the program then, I think, really. And also, they, as I said to you, they paid peanuts, so it was... <laughs> You know, quite a lot of effort, really, uh, you know, when I was doing other stuff by then. And up to the present day, you are still generating content with Big Finish. They have released uh, several full-cast audio stories based on draft scripts of yours from the 1970s. One came out called The Valley of Death, which was based on a proposal of yours. They've also released earlier versions of the stories that became Genesis of the Daleks and Revenge of the Cybermen. Plus, you have the Philip Hinchcliffe Presents line going on very recently. What's it like working with Big Finish? Well, the only—I mean, the only one that that I'd written was the um, the Valley story, um, and the other ones for Philip Hinchcliffe Presents were were brand new ideas which I'd come up with. Oh, wow! And the idea to sort of the kind of stories that would fit into my era of the show, if you see what I mean. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it's great. You know, I thought it was a challenge. I thought, well, it's, these have to be good. Otherwise, you know, what my re reputation, you know, <laughs> be nil. Uh, I worked very hard, uh, you know, to make them worthwhile stories. Uh, but I didn't want, they didn't offer me enough to do all the scripting. And I thought, well, let somebody else do that. And so uh, that worked out very well in, in the end. Um, and I, I, I went to just a day of recording. And what I loved was the speed of audio drama. Uh, you know, it's so fast. Uh, and it's a different, you know, very precise. And everyone's got their own mic and in their little booze. And, uh, you know, and then all the, the effects are all put on much later on in a longer post-production, you know, period. So the actual, uh, I was quite you know, intrigued by the way they were made. You know, it was a sort of a rapid way of creating drama. I think I've heard it said that Big Finish does one full cast play recording every single day of the week. So their output is prodigious. 
And obviously, yeah, I haven't kept up with all of it because just time-wise. But the stuff they do is very, very carefully thought out and very well written. Yes, I think they've got a good reputation and they're doing a lot of stuff. But I didn't know it was that much. Um, whether I'll carry on or not, I don't know. <laughs> so speaking of your role in Doctor Who, you rather famously had one on-screen cameo during your own era. During the Brain of Morbius, there was a succession of figures from the production office who showed up dressed up as, depending on which side of the fan of the bait you fall on, you were either playing a previous incarnation of the Doctor or a previous incarnation of Morbius. With the current 13th Doctor stories on screen, that bit of Brain of Morbius has been revived and has been shown again as a flashback. So your on-screen cameo has now been memorialized forever in Doctor Who. You are playing a past pre-Hartnell Doctor. How does it feel now to officially be an incarnation of Doctor Who? Well, I, I had no idea about it. What, what story is that, then? It's a story called The Timeless Children. It came out in March 2020. It was the last story of Jodie Whittaker's second season. Oh, right. Okay. No, I, I, somebody mentioned that, but I, I haven't seen it, no. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it was just a quick... Uh, all, hum, all hands to the pump, you know, sort of uh, thing that we all had to, to uh, because we had a trouble with equity uh, uh, about getting actors doing it. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't, don't really think about it, to be honest. <laughs> You've never considered your own doctor's personality traits or TARDIS design? <laughs> no, afraid not. <laughs> Philip, thank you so much for joining us for the third time. Unfortunately, this is your last book, so I don't have an easy excuse to invite you back, except to say that you are welcome back whenever you want to talk about whatever type of Doctor Who you wish to discuss. Uh, thank you. Well, I'll, I'll bear that in, in invitation in mind. And it's been a pleasure talking about these uh, novelizations and uh, a journey back in time for me as well, which has been <laughs> great fun. Thanks. Me and my audience, thank you for your time and your generosity. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. And I'm happy to report that Philip did join me a fourth time on Doctor Who Literature early in 2023 after the passing of Chris Boucher, the last surviving Doctor Who TV writer from the 1970s. Philip and I shared some warm reminiscences about Chris Boucher and his work on the program. That is on a bonus episode of Doctor Who Literature, which I encourage you to seek out. I am not going to include it here for reasons of time, but I want to thank many people for facilitating the conversations with Philip. I would like to thank David Barsky, uh, an American TV producer and a longtime friend of mine who arranged for Philip to come on the program. David is a producer over on Doctor Who Literature. I want to thank Graham Burke as well from the Reality Bomb podcast for the suggestion of having Philip on. I want to thank, of course, Philip Hinchcliffe himself for agreeing to speak to me so many times and being so very generous with his reminiscences. And, of course, all thanks to Mark over here on Trap One for allowing me to join his show and for allowing me to hijack a couple of hours of Trap One airtime to repackage material from Doctor Who literature if this is the type of conversation or interview that interests you and you are not yet a follower or a subscriber at Doctor Who Literature, I encourage you to join us. You can find the Doctor Who Literature podcast on most podcatchers of your choice. 
We are also at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show. That's Doctor Who Lit. Spell it out. D-O-C-T-O-R-W-H-O-L-I-T. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's D-R Who Novels. And you can find me on email at Doctor Who Literature. That's D-R Who Literature at gmail.com. You can find all episodes of the Trap One podcast as well on your podcatcher of choice, as well as at trap1.podbean.com. You can find Mark on Twitter at Quark McMalice. That's Quark as in the Quarks and McMalice as in the Malice from The Awakening. Thank you again for joining us on the Trap One podcast. Another panel will join you next week to discuss another topic of interest from the worlds of Doctor Who. Thank you and good night now. (laughs) 